know many of you uh, are probably watching online as COVID is seemingly sweeping through our body. And uh, it's hit our family, and I just seem to get a text every day of hitting somebody else, but thankfully no one has been taken out too badly through it, so uh, endure on, take your ibuprofen, rest, and uh, hopefully you'll make it through. We're taking a little break from our uh, normal practice of teaching through books of the Bible. We've been in Matthew and looking at the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, last year we started this process of looking at some of the practices that seem to be significant in Jesus' life. And we recognize that so often the church, as we present the gospel today, seems to be presenting, okay, just get your ticket to heaven. That's what it's all about. But recognizing that the scriptures call us to much more than that. We are called into a relationship with the God of the universe. We're called to be changed and transformed to live as a citizen of his kingdom. The good news is the good news of the kingdom, right? That Jesus has come. He is the king and he has begun this process of inaugurating his kingdom in this world as he calls men and women to himself to be kind of his ambassadors, the vanguard of what it looks like to be part of that kingdom. So the gospel is not just for what happens then, but it is for what is happening right now in our lives. We're called to be conformed or transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul says in Romans 8. And we looked at that process last week of of transformation. How does that happen? And we just looked at four points. The transformation takes time. It's not an instantaneous type of thing. We come to Christ and we live in a culture that's very instant. And we want to become Christ-like in a moment. Um, A guy named Robert Mulholland um, in a book, Invitation to a Journey, says this, It's not surprising that we, as members of an instant gratification culture, tend to become impatient with any process of development that requires of us more than limited involvement of our time and energies. If we do not receive the desired results almost instantly, we become impatient and frustrated. And I don't know about you, but I've been there too. It's like, Jesus, I want to be like you yesterday, and why am I not acting in a way that's patient and loving and kind towards that person that just cut me off, and why don't I have loving attitudes towards them right away? And he's been growing that in me and developing that in me over time, and I came to Christ in 1985, and I want to tell you that I'm not there yet, but thankfully I'm not where I was You can ask my wife a little bit about that. She has seen, hopefully, some growth and change over the years. So it's a process that takes time, but we also saw it's a process that takes a team, that we're not in this alone. In Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that's effort. It's working out. It doesn't say work in your salvation. That is a gift of God's grace through faith, but we're called to work it out. But then in the next sentence, he says, for God is at work within you. You're not alone in this process. God, by his Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in all of us who have trusted Jesus Christ. He's at work within us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So we embark on this process of transformation not alone, not just like Jason read this morning, doing it in the energy of our own effort. Okay, I'm going to tough it out and I'm just going to become like Jesus. That's never going to work. 
And when we try that, we've often experienced, if you're like me, we fall flat on our face and God lets us stumble into some stuff. It's like, yeah, don't quite have it yet, do you, healthy? <laughs> Maybe you need some help in this process. But also, not only do we have the Holy Spirit as part of our team, but we have got the body of believers that's called to be part of our team as well. As I always say, Christianity is a team sport. We are called to gather together to be encouraged, what to be spurred on to love and good deeds. I don't know if any of you are riders, but you know, what are spurs for? To kick that horse, to get him to go in the direction or the speed that you want. It's sometimes uncomfortable, right? So God puts us together and he's given us all different gifts and sometimes we rub one another a wrong way, but that's maybe part of that process of us kind of being conformed into the image of Christ. So this transformation, it takes a team, but it also takes effort on our part, right? We're to work out our salvation, Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. And when that, we hear that word godliness, what, you know, that's, that's a really weird word. Godlikeness, becoming like Christ. Discipline yourself so that you can act and think and attitude and behavior more like Jesus Christ. And he uses that word discipline. It's the word that we get our word gymnasium from. It's requiring effort. It's not going to happen just if we sit back and say, okay, God, change me. I want to be changed. It's got to be, I've got to show up to this process. And the amazing thing is when I show up to that process, I realize it's not primarily me that's doing the heavy lifting. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing the heavy lifting. But he's not going to do that unless I show up in that process. So it's going to require some effort. And sometimes as evangelicals, we hear that's like, oh, that's work salvation. No, I'm not talking about that. The salvation that we have by grace through faith it's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. I cannot earn that salvation. But once that I've received that salvation, God wants me to participate in this process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, so it takes effort. And then the last thing we looked at last week is that it takes vision. We've got to have something that motivates us from the, for the long haul. What do I want to experience in this life that's going to keep me in the midst of the discipline, right? Because it's hard, and we want to give up sometimes because doing good things gets hard and we're not always rewarded for that. And so what is that call? It's like, okay, I want to become like Christ so I can live as a person of love and joy that is deeper than the circumstances of my life that I have even when I go to the doctor and I hear that C diagnosis or I experience a difficulty at work or a relationship breaks up or whatever happens, there's something deeper inside me that says I can handle this because... I'm related to the God of the universe that has this in his hand. And to walk through life with a sense of peace. And I love that Jewish word shalom. It's more than just an absence of conflict. It means a wholeness that you're going through life and it's just this, this is who I'm meant to be in relationship with God. So we saw that that transformation process takes all of those elements but the question is, as we do those things, how does this actually look as we go through life? And that's where we come to these spiritual practices we're calling, or sometimes they're called spiritual disciplines, those things that enable us to get in a space where God, by his spirit, can begin to work and transform us from the inside out. And I, I, I'm becoming kind of concerned, and this has been a concern for a while, that sometimes in the evangelical church we equate just 
a massive amount of doctrine being dumped into our heads as somehow that is going to transform us and make us holy. And the more information we have automatically translates into a life lived like Jesus Christ. And I've given my life to preaching truth, so I'm not opposed to that at all. I value that highly, but I think there's more that needs to happen than just the data dump of doctrine into our head to transform us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Philippians 4.9, he says this to the Philippian believers, What you have learned and received and heard and seen and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So part of that is certainly intellectual, right? What you've heard, what you've received, what I've spoken, that needs to be in you, but also what you've seen in me. Dallas Willard is a guy that so many people who talk about transformation quote, and his basic idea basically is that if we want to experience the life of Christ, we need to start to live out the lifestyle of Christ. Again, none of us are first century rabbis walking around Palestine, right? That's, but the reality is what did Jesus regularly do in his life that he felt was significant and that enabled him to be the kind of human being that he was? What were some of the practices that he was regularly involved in that seemed to be transformative that people looked at in his life and that the gospel writers seemed to, to focus on? And so as we've been thinking about this, the elders have decided we're going to spend some time probably once or twice a year just looking at some of these practices. And last year we started with prayer at the beginning of the year. We see that central in Jesus' life, right? And then we looked at community, that Jesus was engaged, not just coming into this world and just as a lone ranger going through, but calling people to himself and then sending them out. He's part of a team, right? And all the extroverts love that community. It's like, yes, I love community. Amen. You introverts, you introverts that have been waiting, this is the practice for you. We're going to be looking at solitude and silence this morning. Because it seems to be a fairly significant part of Jesus' life. And if we're going to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, then to me there's some practices that we need to implement in our lives that hopefully will result in transformation. So what is solitude and silence and, and why do we do it? In a book called Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Haley Barton, my wife has read through this book and I've skimmed through it, but she's got a chapter on solitude and she talks about a lot of the disciplines, but this is what she says. The longing for solitude is the longing for God. It is the longing to experience union with God unmediated by the ways we typically try to relate to God. By unmediated, I mean direct experience of God with nothing in between. An encounter with God that is not mediated by words, by theological constructs, by religious activity, by my own or others' manipulations of my relationship with God. It is the practice that spiritual seekers down through the ages have used to experience intimacy with God rather than just talking about it. Solitude is a place. It is a place in time that is set apart for God and God alone. 
a time when we unplug and withdraw from the noise of interpersonal interactions, from the noise, busyness, and constant stimulation associated with life in the company of others. So this practice of solitude and silence is this practice where we are getting away from all the busyness and the, the rush that is modern life. And modern life, I think, is fairly toxic to our souls. We run at a pace that is faster, I think, than any other country in the world. I've read stats on this, that we're the country that works most of any other country. And I've shared before the humorous story of the congressional study that was done in the late 60s that looked at all these new time-saving machines that were coming on and computers and reported to Congress that by 1985, the average person would be working 25 hours a week, 27 weeks a year. So how many of you work a five-day week with five hours a day and get 25 weeks of vacation off a year? Nobody, right? And then we have all these time-saving devices, right? And, and now they follow us around in our pockets. So now what? We have all this leisure. I just don't know what to do with all my time. No, work can follow us everywhere, right? And as we've gone through COVID and as now we're working from home, yeah, that's awesome. You don't have to commute. But the problem is then you are always at work. Always. And so it's always there. And those of you who are more type A, it's like, oh, I can put in a little bit more time tonight and I'll get that done. And so it becomes all-consuming. And then this idea of where is, is my time with God? Is it even a part of my life? And before we head in and look at these practices, I just want to talk about just a couple things on the front end. It's really easy when we start focusing on a specific practice to get all legalistic about it. It's like, okay, now, you know, it's like, oh, dang, Brett, I've already had a maxed out life, and now you're saying I've got to add one more thing. I've got to add silence and solitude into that. There's no way I've got time for that, right? My wife reminded me of a passage. It's Paul talking to the Corinthians, and he says, make room in your hearts for me. And we talked about that metaphor, and I was like, yeah, he said that to the Corinthians, but couldn't God also say that to us? Make room in your hearts for me. And, and that process of making room, I think, means that sometimes something else has to go. Right? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a couple hours on video games. Maybe it's internet shopping. Maybe it's whatever it is. Maybe it's even sleep. That You can say... No, this is something that's really, really significant and valuable, and this is how I'm going to make room in my heart for the King and Lord of the universe. So that's the first thing. Don't let it become a legalistic thing in your life, but just this is a practice, and by practice, it's practice. You're probably going to struggle with this. Next week, we're going to look at more of the kind of nuts and bolts of this but Brother Lawrence said this, the guy that's practicing the presence of God, you know, doing kitchen work, and then I'm experiencing God in the kitchen. So he's a famous kind of Christian mystic, and he says this, For many years I was bothered by the thought that I was a failure at prayer. Then one day I realized I will always be a failure at prayer, and I've gotten along much better since. <laughs> so the reality is, 
Okay, this is a guy that probably experienced the reality of God in a deeper way than I will ever in my life, but even he felt like, oh, I'm a failure at this. So the key is not, okay, how am I doing, but am I starting? Am I going to move forward and to provide and carve out some space in my life where God, by his spirit, can work in my heart? And when we approach solitude, it's not so much the focus on, okay, I'm not going to have any distractions, I'm going to put my phone down, I'm going to turn my computer off, I'm just going to be in a place where I'm not constantly interrupted by this world, but it's a place where I'm able to connect with God. So the focus is not so much on the disconnection, but the disconnection allows me to connect with the God of the universe. I think it's similar to fasting. Remember Jesus and the woman at the well and they've been traveling and Jesus talks to this woman and shares all the, and you know Jesus that the disciples come back and A they're amazed that she's ta- he's talking to a woman B that she's a Samaritan woman and then you know he hasn't eaten and they say hey, are you hungry and Jesus is like I have food to eat that you know nothing of and so, like fasting is not the focus is not necessarily on what you're giving up but learning to feast on God learning that. You know, man does not live by bread alone and that Jesus is the bread of life, so I feast on him in the same way. Solitude is not so much of, I don't have any companionship or friends, but I am learning to find fellowship and connection and companionship with God. And we tend to look at, okay, well, then, no, that's not the point of disconnecting is to connect, not just to disconnect. We see in Jesus' life, that regular times of silence and solitude seem to be vital. Luke 5.16 says this, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. That word lonely is eremos. It's translated in several different ways. It's translated as the desert, the lonely place, the solitary place, the wilderness. But Luke is saying that Jesus had a regular practice of getting away from the hustle and bustle of humanity to be alone with his father. We see this at the very beginning of his ministry, right? He's baptized and then what's the first thing? The Holy Spirit leads him to what? The Eremos, the desert, the wilderness. And I was listening to a teaching several years ago and the guy made the point that we think, oh man, Jesus is in the wilderness and he's in this showdown with Satan, right? And it's like, wow, why would the Holy Spirit lead him out there and deprive him of all this stuff? He's going to be really weak. And the guy made the point, yes, he may be physically weak, but this is probably his time of greatest spiritual strength. As for 40 days, he was feasting on God away just in his relationship with God. So when he encountered the evil one. He was able to be filled with the power of God because he had feasted on God and been away from God and focused on God for all that time. Just some passages that deal with this. Before selecting his 12 apostles, Jesus spent all night alone in prayer, Luke 6:12. After John the Baptist's death, says Jesus withdrew to the lonely place or the desert, Matthew 14, 13. After feeding 5,000, he went to the hills by himself, Matthew 14, 23. After a long day of work, right, in Capernaum in the beginning of Mark, says Jesus rose early while it was still dark and went to the Eremos, the desert place. And in that story, everybody from town is like showing up at where Jesus had been 
And the disciples are like, we have no idea where Jesus is. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's probably out in the Aramis. We're going to go see him. And so they go out to see Jesus. And they said, Jesus, this is amazing. Everybody's here. You don't understand the significance. This is an awesome time to start your ministry. How many people are coming? This is a great thing. And what does Jesus say? Eh, time to move on to some other cities because I've been sent to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So he'd spent time with the Lord and what all the others were saying, this is what you need to be about. You need to stay here healing and doing all this stuff. Jesus says, I've heard from my father and it's time to move on to different places. Do you ever feel like, man, I wish I could just stand more with God and less pull from all the people in my life? Maybe that will take place in the Aramos. After the return of his 12 apostles that he sent out on a short-term mission, he says, come away by yourselves into the Aramos. Let's get out of all the hustle and bustle. At the transfiguration, right, Jesus went up with his three closest apostles up on the top of a mountain to what? To pray, to get out of the bustle. And I know I love the mountains. There's not a lot of mountains in Florida. And that's probably one of the things that I miss most. Lived in Idaho for a while, and there's a place called Stanley that is my favorite place on the earth. And one of the reasons is, is this beautiful mountain valley surrounded by all these rocky peaks. And it's just like, wow. That's a place where I can play. And then we see it finally in Gethsemane, right? He gets away with, again, some of his closest friends, but then it says he goes a stone's throw away. I don't know how far Jesus could throw a stone, but it's some distance, right? Distance to be away, probably out of hearing distance from his friends, and what he poured out his heart before God. So I think as we look at the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate through these authors that Getting away in solitude and silence with the Father is really, really significant. We see Jesus doing this over and over and over. And again, as we read through the New Testament, nowhere is it mandated, okay, this is what you need to do. So as I talk about this, I just want to say that this is a practice that seemed to be really significant for Jesus. So maybe we can learn from that. And maybe we can push into that practice a little bit. Not because we have to, but because we long to have a relationship with God that is more than just theoretical, but it's experiential as we live out life to walk with God in the midst of the busyness of our world. Henry Nouwen, or Henri Nouwen, however you want to pronounce that, he was a guy that taught at I think Yale, just a brilliant guy, but then realized he was pretty disconnected from God and pretty up in his head about all this stuff. And then he left there to work at a place called La Arch, which was a, a, a place where there were kids with special needs that he said, they knew nothing about who I was. They couldn't care of any of my credentials, all the degrees I had on the wall. They're like, why didn't you bring me breakfast, Henry? Where is it? You know, and he said, and this is what he says. Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. So we see this practice in Jesus' life, 
I think you see it in Paul's life as well. I was just reading through Acts, and when he goes and he goes over to Macedonia and he encounters Lydia, they go out what to the place where they they were praying, right? And then the next event is they going out to pray. So this seemed to be a place where they would go out away from the bustle of the city on the riverside and and pray. So. This is a practice that I think would fall under that imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what will this practice do for us? And I've thought through this, and to me this is not an exhaustive list, but just some of the things that I think are really beneficial for us as believers. If we get into the solitude, the eremos, the place of silence, it's a place that provides space for us to experience intimacy in our relationship with God. Knowing God and knowing about God are two very different things. Now we need the data, that is clear. But if that's where it ends, if it's just an intellectual comprehension of yes, this is who Jesus is and it doesn't push into yes, I want to know this Jesus, then there's something lacking there. And I think when we get in that quiet space, it's a place for us to encounter God in reality we bring all of us into that place and hopefully we have an understanding of the gospel that lets us be real in that place that lets us understand that i can bring all of my stuff into this place i love it that one of the things in the gospels that pushes jesus into the aramos or the wilderness or the solitary place is when his friend and co-minister john the baptist dies he's like Immediately after that, he says, I got to get out. And in Mark, you always see that word immediately. So I call him Mark's using immediately again. It's just his verbal tick or his writing tick, right? But when Matthew says immediately, it, it means more, right? So right after John the Baptist is beheaded, Jesus says, I need to get out of here. I need to go out and be with my father. Not pr- because probably he was in a really great place, but because he was really hurting. And he knew this is the place where I can express fully my grief. Where I can be real with God. Because he knows it already. You know, sometimes we're afraid of silence and solitude because we've got to face some of the stuff that we, in the busyness of our life and the stuff that, you know, nobody, we don't, we don't have any time where, where there's downtime anymore, right? What do we do the first time, thing that we're in a line that's more than, you know, 32 seconds. We pull out our phone. Okay, what's on my news feed right now? Are there any emails I have to answer? You know, what are the latest podcasts that are coming up? All, all, it's, it's, there's no time where we just, okay, what? Who am I and why am I doing all the stuff that I'm doing? And there's something that is inviting with that and there's something that's scary about that as well. Pascal said all the wickedness of the world could be done away with if human beings could just learn to be content in their room. And he says, we, we distract ourselves because we realize when we get alone sometimes, and if we're without God, it's just this realize that, man, it's, it's really lonely. There's, this is a massively massive universe, and I'm just a speck on a speck on a speck, and why the heck am I here? Does my life matter at all? Probably not. But if I'm keeping these things constantly going in my head, maybe I don't have to think about that. And so solitude causes us to, to face the real parts of who we are, right? The good, the bad, the ugly. Remember the story of Elijah? He has this awesome showdown with the prophets of Baal. God shows up in a massive way, defeats him. And then the next day, Jezebel's like, dude, you're dead. 
And he's like, ay, 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 ay. And he runs where? He runs into the wilderness, right? And then he runs where? Down to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, that place where God reveals himself because he knows Man, and he's all into self-pity, and he's like, just kill me. I can't stand it anymore. I thought the whole nation would turn around after that event, and now I'm like, yeah, it's just terrible. Nobody loves you like me, God. And I love God's grace in his life, and he just sleeps, and he feeds him, and he sleeps, and he feeds him. And then he goes 40 days down to Horeb, and then God shows up in a way that's unexpected, right? Not in the wind that crushes rocks, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, or maybe that means lightning, but the NIV, I think, translates it gentle whisper. King James, I think it's still small voice. And God reorients his life. And he says, yep, this is a time of perspective change as well when we get into the wilderness with God. Hey, Elijah, you thought you were all alone? Actually, 7,000 haven't bowed the knees to Baal. Numbers in scripture are often symbolic. 7,000 is a number of greatness. It's like, okay, I've got a lot of people in this land that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. So you're not alone. I'm with you. Let's get up and get on with what I've called you to do. And he gets up and he gets on with what God has called him to do because he's encountered the God of the universe in the Aramos. It's a place where we're aware of God's presence. As we sung this morning, let my words be few, it's from Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, which he goes on to say basically is just too much, too much talk. And I'm a talker, right? That's what I make my living at is talking. And one of my challenges is just to shut up. Even when I go into prayer, right? It's like, okay, I've got my agenda, and this, I'm going to go through this, and this is what I do, and I'm speaking, 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 and what God has been calling me to do more recently is just shut up and listen. Create some space of just sil- and listening to me. And as I practice that, sometimes I feel that God speaks, and sometimes I can get a lot out of this, but... I'm providing that space that if God would want to communicate something to me, he can. And even in the midst of that space, one of the things I always realize is what I call my glorious smallness. When I get alone with God in the silence and I think about, wow, I'm part of a universe that's 93 billion light years across. I'm on a little planet in a little galaxy of 200 billion stars. There's 200 billion other galaxies. When you think of that, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm really not that big. But how big you are, God. And there's a lot of comfort in that for me. Because though I am gloriously small, I am inhabited by the Spirit, by the God of infinite glory and power that's created all of this. And when I get into that space, I can recognize more readily, no matter what's pressing on my life, God, you've got this. So often, I am so busy trying to make it happen. I gotta make it happen. And I think so many Christians live that way. I gotta make it happen. I gotta show up. I gotta do more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And I know that because I'm type A. And I know that because part of my spiritual pathology is never feeling like God's ever satisfied with me. 
And it's like, oh, you got to do more. It's like, yeah, that was okay, but you could have done more. You could And I need those places where God can say, you know what, Brett, I've got this. And you know what, I really love you. And I say, really, God? And sometimes he says, yeah, I really do. And I need to hear that regularly. So it's a place where the real me can connect with the real God. I don't usually have like verses of the year and stuff like that, but God just impressed on me as I was reading through the Psalms. Psalm 131 needs to be kind of my psalm for, for this year. You don't have to turn there, but this is what it says. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And I'm a person that always, my brain, I just, it's always going. And it's always going with these questions like, okay, how do I reconcile divine sovereignty and human free will? And how do I deal with the problem of evil? And all that stuff is constantly going around in my head. And I've wrestled with that and we need to wrestle with that. But I get to that place where some of this is going to remain a mystery. The things of God belong to us that he has revealed, but there are secret things that belong to him. And I think there's some stuff that we're never going to understand fully. Another quote from Mulholland, he says this, the essential difference between Orthodox Christianity and the various heretical systems is that orthodoxy is rooted in paradox. Heretics, as Irenaeus saw, reject paradox in favor of clarity and precision where one has all the right answers, all the easy answers, all the quick fixes, there is no room for mystery. And if there is no room for mystery, there is no room for God, because God is the ultimate mystery. And I think there's some truth in that. As we wrestle with Scripture, there are certain things that I don't think we'll ever be able to fully put together, because God is way above our pay grade. And most of us, I'll say, and I, because of my pride, will think, you know, I'm going to be able to understand this. I'll be able to push into this, right? And then I get to the end of Romans 11, and it says the depth of wisdom of God. His ways are inscrutable. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But I think, yeah, his, I can get to his thoughts by just pushing hard enough. And again, I'm not about being lazy intellectually. You know that. We're to love God with our mind, but also recognize the limitations of our mind. And sometimes we have to say, God, I don't understand this. I'm not really sure what you're doing in my life right now, but I come to you, the God that is in control of all this, and you've got this. I spent some time this week talking to one of our missionaries that's going through a difficult time, and just like, this is the path we're all going down, and then all of a sudden, that is not the way anymore. And you're like, what, what are you doing, God? I had it figured out. This was the path. This was clarity. This was, and God says, maybe not. Hold on. Have you ever been there in your relationship with God? Spending time in solitude does not mean you're going to get all the answers. But spending time in solitude brings you to the place where you are with the God of the universe and somehow having all those answers is just not as important anymore. Because we know you've got it and you've got my life and you're directing it in a good way and a beneficial way. 
And those of you who have kids, you know before they're weaned how frantic they are to find food. And I love that picture of a weaned child just being content to be with his mother. Just resting. It's okay. Those of you who have been in long-term relationships, you get to that point where, you know, sometimes it's okay just to be still and quiet together. And you don't always have to be talking, and that doesn't mean your relationship's falling apart. It may mean you're just at a place of peace in that relationship, and there's solidity there, and you know that bond is so deep that you don't need words right now. Now, if you never talk to your spouse, come talk to me. (laughs) But there are times, right? So God is calling us to this space where he can begin to show himself to us. And that knowing about becomes a knowing. To me, that is the most important aspect of solitude. But there's some other benefits that I see. To me, it provides a space to detox our souls from the distractions and the crush of our culture. We are so busy all the time. All the time. And I don't think we understand the weight that that puts on our lives. And we've gotten busier and busier. We're working more and more, and we've already talked about that. But this solitude and silence provides us a place to rest, just to, just to breathe. In Mark 6, this is John the Baptist. He's died, and Jesus sends out the 12, and then they come back, And then verse 30 of Mark 6, he says, The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. They were all excited about their short-term mission. Look at all the great stuff we've done, right? And Jesus says to them, almost cutting them off, he says, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He says, Let's get out of the busyness. Let's go rest. And so if you know the story, they go to rest, and when they're going to rest, everybody's follows them, right? And he gets out there and then he has to feed the 5,000 out there, right? So that's so true of our lives and I just like, okay, I'm going to set aside this time for solitude and silence, right? And you get away and then, oh man, one of the kids, something happens and there's an emergency or something happens at work and it's like, oh, the best plans, you know? But Jesus, I love it. He just flows with that and he's just like, okay, let's teach these people, let's feed these people and then he feeds them and then dismisses them and then he sends the disciples out in the boat and what does he do? He goes up to the mountain to be alone and to pray. And again, this is the same time, I think, frame where he's lost John the Baptist, and so he needs that time away. But the recognition of you, you're doing this in the midst of the busyness of life, and the scriptures say that the disciples didn't even have time to eat, right? They were so busy. In our culture, that's a mark of value and significance. Oh, yeah, I was so busy, I didn't even get a lunch. haven't had a lunch all week, man. I'm working 80 hours a week. I am so incredibly important. The whole world rests on my shoulders, right? And Jesus said, that's not a great thing. He said, dude, you don't even have time. Let's get out of here and let's go to a quiet place. And he goes to the quiet place and ministry interrupts and ministry is interruptions, but he ministers, but he still says, this is, we need to get away. We need space. Why? Because life is pressing in on us. The early church fathers looked at the world sometimes as a ship that's being shipwrecked and they realized, man, we got to get off this thing to go to a place where we can reconnect and re-sink in with God and what's truly valuable and what's truly significant and important. 
So that place of rest gives us a chance to put down all that stuff from our culture that's constantly focusing our attention on it, right? There's MIT and Stanford and Harvard PhDs typing away their algorithms to try and get you to make that next swipe. Ooh, what's going to hook them, right? Oh, that next, that's going to get them. And so we're, we're drawn into that, right? And this is a new thing since 2007, and Steve Jobs came out with that thing called the iPhone, right? It's ever-present in our lives, and so I think I'm not one that says, oh, that's all bad. It's not. There's some beautiful things. You know, we can, my wife can FaceTime with her parents in Germany, and it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. But unless we are willing periodically to put that thing down and say, I'm not going to be ruled by that thing, because I need to get alone with my God and recognize, you know what, life's not all about what that next thing is on my feed or what the next post is on social media, it's, it's bigger than that. I need to raise my perspective up above everything I'm doing. So it provides a space for us to kind of detox from the world that we know. And I think it's also paradoxically a space to relieve our loneliness. Richard Foster has a book on the disciplines, I've got it there, but uh, he says, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Have you guys ever been someplace where there are a ton of people, yet inwardly you just feel totally alone? And I think we can fill our lives with the busyness of everything, but and no matter how many zillion social media friends that we have, there can be this ache of loneliness in us. And I think the only one that can truly fill that ache is the Lord. And we try to fill it with other people, and God's given us people. That's a wonderful thing. But if we're putting the burden for them to fill our emotional tank and take away that loneliness, I think we're going to put pressure on them ultimately that's going to crush them. It's like, wow, you're just a little bit too needy. I need to back away from, from this relationship, right? So when we spend time with God, like I said before, it's not so much that I'm disconnecting from other people that I'm connecting with God. And I am enabling him to fill me up and to let me know, Brett, you're valuable. I love you. I care about you. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm there Jesus is my friend. And when that hits, then I'm not so needy when I go back into the world. And to me, that's another paradox, that when I spend time in solitude and silence, I'm actually much more beneficial for the community when I finally get back there. Howard Hendricks, a famous old teacher, said, you cannot impart what you do not possess. If I'm going through life like a husk in the midst of this very superficial world that we live in, I don't have a whole lot to give to other people. But if I've spent time with the Lord and been re-energized and filled up with him, then I can go into this world and say, you know what, it's okay if people don't meet my needs, but what can I do to meet the needs of other people? I don't need to be the center of attention because that's what I need to feel valuable and worthwhile, but I know I'm valuable and worthwhile in the sight of God so I can just serve in whatever way. Maybe that even means washing feet, doing the most menial task, just because it's necessary. Why? Why did Jesus do that? He says, knowing where he came from and knowing where he was going, he washed their feet 
He was aware of who he was in the sight of God, and because of that, he said, I'll do whatever it takes because I'm come to serve, and that doesn't mean I'm menial or unimportant because I know I'm important to my Father. And so when we spend time alone with the Lord, paradoxically, that makes us better people in community. And again, we see this pattern in Jesus' life, right? He goes away, but he doesn't stay away. You introverts want to go away and stay away, right? Just go away and, you know, I'm going to live on a cabin on a Rocky Mountain with a trout stream in the backyard and like 7,000 books. And now with Kindle, I can have them all on my Kindle. I don't even have to haul them in there. This is heaven, right? Yeah, for a while. But can I really become transformed in the image of Christ if I'm all alone? No. But can I help others be conformed to the image of Christ if I'm never all alone with Christ? I don't think I can either. So it's that push and pull into solitude, back into community, back into solitude and community that we need. And so I want to invite you just to push into this practice a little bit. And I don't know what it's going to look like in your lives. We're all at different places and different seasons, and I know if you're a family with young kids and you're in that family, you probably don't have an extra three minutes, and so saying, oh, I need to spend two hours of silence and solitude, it's like, that's not going to happen, or if you're in grad school or or wherever, it's like, okay, what can I do in my life to provide some space where this can happen? Space where the Holy Spirit and I can just get alone. And I can say, God, speak for your servant is listening. I want to hear from you. I want this relationship that we have to be more than just words and just up here. I want to encounter you. I want to hear you speak to me. I want to respond to your word. And I want to provide space for that. And again, they're called spiritual practices, not spiritual perfections, right? <laughs> Take solace from Brother Lawrence's quote. We're probably going to feel like failures at this. Or are you going to set aside time and like Jesus and the apostles, they get away and then, ah, the rush of life hits. It's like, okay, let's just move forward. When can we get that in? Scriptures are very realistic. But I agree with Nowen that I don't think we're going to experience depth in our spiritual life unless we spend time in solitude with Jesus. And somehow we know that about every relationship, Right? Relationships aren't going to grow, aren't going to be transformative in our lives unless I invest a significant amount of time in that. And I've talked for years about the myth of quality time, right? You know, oh, I'm just going to give you quality time. You know, okay, son, let's sit down five minutes, unburden your heart to me. What's going on in your life? Like, it's never going to happen, right? If you've got boys, you realize that's never going to happen. Maybe ever, but maybe if you're playing sports and there's a significant amount of time that you spend, that can happen. And we all struggle with that, but I say, Lord, I want to have a quantity of time in my life for you to work in a quality way in my life. So I don't know what that's going to look like in your life, but I know from my own life and my own experience that it's really significant and important. And I know I'm a Bible nerd. I know I'm a morning person. This week, my wife was amazed. One day this week, I slept into 608. (laughs) And another day this week, I slept into 7.10. I have not slept into 7.10 for years, you know. 
Usually I see four on the clock when I get up, and that's just, okay, that's just me. I used to fight that. It's like, now this is solitude, silence. That's, that's what works for me. Some of you, even Jesus doesn't want to be with you in the morning until you get coffee in you. So that's okay. You know, maybe your quiet time is at one in the morning. Okay, fine. Let's not get legalistic about it, but let's, let's push into it. Let's say, this is an opportunity for us to get to know the God of the universe. That's not an insignificant thing. It's more important than whatever is going to be at that next swipe. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for modeling for us this practice. And Lord, we struggle so much. For some of us, solitude and silence is really intimidating because we've always been a part of a world where there's constantly a soundtrack going on. And maybe we're scared because if we enter into it, we don't know what's going to happen there. But Lord, I just pray that you'd reassure us that we would begin to encounter you in a richer and more real way. That our understanding about you, Lord, may that be deep and rich, but may that be matched by a deep and rich relational aspect of our walk with you as well. So Lord, help us. Like Brother Lawrence, we're all failures, but thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you, Lord, that you're calling us to be with you, that you want us to seek you. Thank you, Lord, that you are so gentle and humble that you will not push yourself into our lives if we do not provide space for you. But, Lord, how much we miss out when we don't provide that space for you. So for each person here, whatever that looks like in their life, I just pray that your spirit would impress that upon them. And together, Lord, we would come to that place where we long for the Aremos, that time with you. It's not mere drudgery or discipline, but it's a time where we get to connect with our Lord and our King and our friend, Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how much you love us. And Jesus, it's in your powerful and precious name I pray. Amen. <laughs>